Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, they, those who practice such things, deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. If you are new today, welcome here. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and we are glad to have you on this rainy Memorial Day weekend you are here and i'm proud of you for being here and uh just tell your neighbor way to go this morning way to be here just go ahead this is a good affirmation moment (laughs) 
I want to thank uh, Rita and over the next uh, many weeks of our current series, which is Foundations. If you're new this morning, we're in the middle of a series. We just started it last week, so it's great that you're here this morning. Um, always good that you're here. We, we love that you're here. But we are in the middle of a series, Foundations, and each week, a different person from our church will be um, portraying the scripture for the week, as you have just seen in artistic fashion, and uh, I just... Thank God this morning for uh, Rita and the piece of art that portrays this week's passage is hanging in the back. I, I hope that later, maybe even throughout the sermon today, that you can go and admire uh, what God put in her heart and in her vision as she spent time in the Word and as she depicted that um, creatively and expressed that for us. But we are going to be today continuing in Romans. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, you can go ahead and turn it open to the book of Romans. It's in the New Testament, almost squarely in the middle, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, and then the book of Romans in your New Testament. And man, I told you last week how excited, how very excited that I am uh, that we are in this passage, uh, in this book of the word in the next 16 weeks, and I hope that you are excited and expectant as well. Um, Last week, what we looked at together, if you weren't here, I'll just go ahead and try to summarize it for you. It'll be on the screen too. But it's this, that we looked at last week that Romans clearly and beautifully lays out the solid foundation that Jesus has perfectly provided for us to build our faith and our lives upon. We talked about last week how very much we need the gospel. We need it. We need understanding. We need admiration. We need transformation. We need motivation through the gospel. And what the book of Romans is all about is the gospel. The good news, gospel just means, remember, good news. The good news of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And indeed, what Christ has done is the very foundation, hence the name of the whole series, the foundation for us to build the hope of our faith and lives upon. And we need this so much. In fact, we looked last week at chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And what we saw is the theme of last week was gospel celebration. Remember, I told you it's And I hope you spent time in the Word this week. I just want to encourage you again to follow those daily readings that we're putting out. Memorize those scriptures. Uh, I pray, I I think many in the room have already attested, it's an awesome encouragement just to get to spend time with God and His Word every day. Especially in the same book that we're in together as a church. But what we see in those first 17 verses is a celebration of Jesus. Paul's basically just like, woohoo, like... I just am, I'm, I'm telling you, this is my introduction to the letter, and, and indeed, he's going to spend the whole rest of the letter talking about it. But in the introduction, he said, you know what? What God has done for us in Jesus is awesome. It is awesome. And that's why we get to his thesis, and just as a reminder, at the end of that section, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he gets to his thesis and The rest of the book will be used to unpack this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Essentially, he's saying, I want to write to you Romans. 
It's not just for new Christians, it's for all of us. We need to get this more and more and more, that truly the gospel, in other words, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, is the means through which God is powerful. God has all power, and God can do anything. But he has chosen to use his power through the gospel, the news of what Christ has done, to change you, to save and to transform your life. Anybody in the room needs salvation and transformation? I'm just saying, I do. And what Paul's saying is, I am happy about this. I'm writing to you. I am not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the means through which God can, wants, can, will do to save and transform your life. Does that make sense? So that's where we were last week. And today, we're going to be finishing out chapter 1. So if you've got your guides, um, you can turn them open to our second section, which is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And there's a question that comes up if you're, if you, I told you last week that Paul is a very, he writes the book of Romans very logically. It's gospel argument. Essentially, he is building a case for us to believe that his thesis is indeed true, like any of us did when we wrote our good research papers, or some of you who are still writing them, I'm so sorry. Um, Good luck as you finish school. But, you know, as any good research paper does, he's laying out his thesis and he's saying, okay, here's why this thesis is true, and then he'll come back at the end and again state his thesis. He's a great research paper writer, right? But Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us about this gospel, and he builds logical arguments. Well, the first question that I think any person would ask, including you and me, at the end of verse 17, you know, Paul's just saying, okay, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. What's the logical question there? It's, well, um, that's good, but I don't, why, why do I need to be saved? <laughs> right? He's, he's saying, hey guys, get excited. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. And it's like, well, what am I need to be saved from? I mean, anybody get that logical question? What, why do I need to be saved? You see, to understand good news, it's predicated on understanding why you need the good news to start with. Right? For instance, if I said this morning, you're healed. You are healed. It's over. You're healed. Some of you in the room resonate with that very much because you've got something that you've been praying for healing for. You've got some disease or affliction that you need healing from. Others of you this morning have no clue. It doesn't resonate with any part of you because you're like, uh, that's cool, but I, didn't, I, don't, I don't need healing. <laughs> right? You, you have to understand that you need healing. Listen, I'm telling you this morning, if you had some kind of disease in your body or some infliction right today, and I say you are healed, you're going to be really excited about that. But if you don't feel like you have anything wrong, you're not going to resonate with it as much. Imagine if I say, you're rescued. You're rescued. The Americans have won and you're rescued. 
rescued this morning. Does that resonate with anybody? <laughs> anybody? 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 Okay. It, maybe not. Um, I guarantee you, though, if you were sitting in concentration camp in Germany at the end of World War II, and that news had been delivered to you, I guarantee you that it would have resonated with you down to your core, that the battle was over and rescue was coming. You think you, you might resonate with you then? Yeah. Uh, if I said this morning, you're dead free. Now, okay, now I finally got it. I was just going to keep going until I finally got something, right? Okay, so all the laughter, I think, means that you're in debt. Um, yeah, yeah, you're guilty. Yeah, so if you have debt this morning, then when I say you are debt-free, I've paid all your debts for you. Man, oh, man, if you have debts in the room today, you're going to be leaving for joy. Praise God, this dude paid my debt, right? It resonates with you. But if you don't have debt this morning, maybe you weren't the one that laughed and you're going, well, that doesn't really help me. It doesn't resonate with me. What I'm saying is to understand good news, you've got to understand why you need the good news. I'm convinced, and I know Paul is convinced as he writes this book, which is why he starts the way he does in verses 18 to 32. He's convinced of this, that one of the reasons we don't so deeply rejoice in the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ is we don't understand why we need to be saved. One of the reasons that we don't lift our hands and shout our voice and live a life of joy, one of the reasons it doesn't resonate with us down to our core what Christ has done is perhaps because we don't really get, we don't really believe that we really need to be saved. And if you don't think you really need to be saved, a.k.a. you cannot, will not, in your own power or strength, do anything to make you right with God, if you don't really know that you need to be saved, then when the good news comes, the gospel, when it comes, you're just going to sit there and go, okay. So Paul begins, knowing this, he begins in verse 18 to 32, by helping us see why it is that we need this salvation. In fact, if you look back at Romans 1, and you look at verse 18, which is the start of this section, it starts with the word for, in my translation, and in the Greek, that's a very good English translation of the Greek, because it is a continuation of thought from verses 16 and 17. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And he goes on and he says, for, it's a continuation of thought. In other words, you've got to understand verse 18 in order to rejoice with celebration in verse 16 and 17. Are you tracking? So he's saying, because of this, this is why I'm so excited about the gospel. So this is what we're going to go through this morning. It's Paul's argument, 18 to 32. And I'm going to take it very logically. There's a big thought, and it's this. It's on the screen. And I don't want you to miss it. You should be writing everything down this morning, whether on your phone, whether on a scratch piece of paper, or hopefully in your guides. Track along. Because I want you to learn God's word. This is not Barrett speaking this morning. This is what God says, and you need this today as a foundation for your life. The short answer for this whole section, and then we're going to break it down to see how it comes about Why do we need to be saved? That's the question. 
The short answer is because of God's wrath toward our unrighteousness. Why is it that you and I should rejoice in salvation? It's because you've got to understand that you need to be saved. Why do you need to be saved? Because God's wrath is being poured out towards the unrighteousness of men. And you are included, and so am I. Verse 18, let's look at it together. For, again, continuation of thought. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For, so to answer the question, why is it that we need to be saved? For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So Paul begins unpacking his thesis by this. He says, we have a problem. You have a problem. See, God, his wrath is being revealed. It is being poured out. Currently, God is acting in wrath toward unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Now, I know, I know, I know that in our nice, kind little society and Western mentality, that we don't like to think about God as having wrath because we like to focus on God having love and God being gracious. And indeed, God is full of love and he is also full of grace. You might ask the question, how is it that a loving God could have wrath? It's not something that we talk about very much and honestly, I don't know that it's something that we talk about enough. Well, the reason is this, friends, and you can think about this and maybe write it down. The reason is this is because the opposite of love is not wrath, but indifference. It's not a contradiction for God to have both love and wrath. He is both full of love and he is full of wrath. For God to care, he must act righteously toward that which is the antithesis of him. Indeed, the two words are used, ungodliness. Other words, that which is not of God. Not working with God. Not walking God's way. His wrath is revealed against ungodliness. And then secondly, he says, against unrighteousness. Again, the antithesis of all that is right. Not living rightly. Even in right things, not doing them in the right way way for God to care for God to be righteous now we think about anger sometimes in unrighteous ways anger that's motivated out of selfishness or bitterness or retaliation that's not the kind of anger that it's talking about here this is righteous anger and God for him to care which he does in his love he cares more than you could ever imagine His wrath must be poured out. Righteously, it is poured 
out. He is angry against all that is not of God and all that is not of righteousness. And it is being poured out against the unrighteousness, the ungodliness, not just in general, but of men. And when he says that word, you need to see yourself in that picture. The scripture is saying, what God is saying to us here is that God is angry with all that is in you and all that is in me that is the opposite of all that he is. When we live in unrighteousness and when we live in ungodliness, his wrath is poured out against those things. And if we're not surrendered to him, against us. Jesus, even the one who many people who don't like to talk about God's wrath turn to, to talk about how loving and kind he is, and he always accepted people, he talked about the wrath of God remaining on people. John chapter 3, right after he says the beloved verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, who, whosoever might believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We love that verse. But right after that, he says, those who are living in sin, God's condemnation remains upon them. This is a clear teaching of scripture from the start to the finish. If you look at the Old Testament, God acted in wrath toward people who didn't walk in his way. Sometimes it was a single person who would be killed because of some unrighteous act that they did. Sometimes it was an entire city that would be destroyed because of unrighteousness and ungodliness that was present within. And in Isaiah 1 to 3, we know that God will act in future wrath towards sin and those who have not repented toward him. Don't get it wrong, friends. God loves But if you're living in ungodliness and if you're living in unrighteousness, his wrath is being poured out. He is angry. He is against all that is against him. This is a clear teaching of scripture. And Paul says, if you don't understand this, If you don't understand that this is where you are apart from his saving grace, if you don't understand your need here, you will never, you will never be able to rejoice in the salvation that God has provided. This is absolutely true, friends. It is absolutely true. Now, you might ask the question, because I know that's heavy, right? It's true, but it's heavy. You might ask the question then, well, what exactly is this unrighteousness? What, what exactly is this ungodliness? And Paul's going to go into more detail here out of verse 18 to help us understand it. Because there are a lot of people who I really believe will, can justify, anybody ever heard or thought, you know, I'm not really that bad. You know, that... I know those people that Paul's talking about. They're so unrighteous and they're so ungodly. They're so against God, but I'm not really that bad. God's not really, he couldn't really be that angry at me. I mean, I haven't done that many wrong things. Y'all ever heard that kind of thought or argument from somebody? Paul wants to make it crystal clear who he's talking about and that all of us are guilty of this and that God's wrath apart from Christ is being poured out to every person. He wants to make it very clear. So he's going to unpack for us what it is that he calls unrighteousness or godliness. So I'm going to walk you through his argument, okay? I want you to write these points down this morning. There's five of them. They summarize essentially what Paul is trying to say. 
The question is, why is it that we need to be saved? The first point that Paul wants to make is this, that everyone knows God is powerful and should worship him. It's the first point that Paul wants to make. If you look back at your scripture, starting in verse 19, he says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In verse 18, Paul said that all of us, wrath is being poured out against all of us because of our unrighteousness and ungodliness that we suppress the truth. What truth is he talking about? What is it that we've done wrong? Well, he starts by saying, here's the truth. The truth is that you know God. You know God. Every person, here's something that you can know about every person in the whole wide world. Every person in the wide world. I don't care what they tell you or what the, his, the, the philosophy books say. Every person in the world, I'm basing this on the confidence of God's word. Every person knows that God exists. They know that there is a God, that he exists, and that our life is owed to him. He says, for what is known about God, there's, there's some things that all people can know about God. Indeed, he goes into detail and says, it is plain to them. It's not hard. It is plain. Because God has shown it to him. God makes this known to every person in the world from the start of history, Adam and Eve, all the way to the present day. Every person knows this. His invisible attributes, and then he names them. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived through the things that have been made. So, every person knows that there is God. That he's powerful, his divine nature, and his eternal power, and that our life is owed to him. We know that our life should be about him. We know that we should submit to him. We know that he is there. Now, I know there's going to be people. To me, this answers the question undoubtedly of why frontier mission work is so vital to our mission as Christians. Because every person every person knows this about God. And yet what we know is continued unrighteousness and continued ungodliness. Now granted, some people in the world might have this awareness and almost instinctively or immediately suppress it, which is what we're going to look at in a little bit. We know that some people have this awareness in their culture or their parents come in and teach them that that's not true. Or their religious system teach them that it's not really that important. Or their own dark hearts teach them that it's not really that big of a deal. But what we know from Scripture is that God has made it plain. And he says he's done it through creation. Anybody been outside and watched the sunset here over the river? Isn't it just amazing? I sit by that sunset sometimes and I just get awestruck. You can't look at a sunset, I don't think, without 
a keen awareness that there is a God. <laughs> I don't think you can look at a starry night without a keen awareness that I ain't God, right? I mean, I am a small little piece of something huge that's going on. The more we know in science, the more I think that's revealed of the beauty and wonder and the design, the intelligence of God. Through the human body, through the things that have been made, just the created order itself, all of it is screaming to us like Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. All of creation is screaming to us, God is real, and you need to know him. You need to live for him. You need to submit to him. We know in our own conscience that we should submit to God. We know that we're not our own standard. And what Paul's saying here is to understand unrighteousness and ungodliness, it starts with this. You've got to know that everyone knows that God is powerful and that he should be worshipped. God's self-revelation and creation doesn't save people. You can't get to Jesus by looking at the clouds. His self-revelation, looking at creation, is not enough to save people, but it is enough that all of us are found guilty in our rebellion against him. None of us will have an excuse on the last day because all of us know that he's real and that we should have submitted to him. You got it? That's point number one. Point number two is this. This is where it gets really important for us to understand God's wrath being poured out against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Here's the real crux of the problem in our hearts and lives. It's number two, that everyone, without exception, everyone chooses to reject relationship with God. Everyone, everyone chooses to reject relationship with God. Now, the really helpful thing for us to understand in this passage is that Paul actually unpacks for us what it looks like to reject a relationship with God. What do you mean I've rejected a relationship with God? Some of you might ask that question. What do you mean? I haven't re- Well, Paul says everyone has done this, and it's happened in two ways. The first one we'll look at is this. It is suppressing God. Paul says that everyone has rejected relationship with God. And it happens in two ways. The first way is in suppressing God. We're going to look at a couple of verses here. Stay with me. Verses 21, 20, excuse me, 18, 21, 22, 28, and 32. All right? Start with 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, again, he's qualifying what it means to be unrighteous, by their unrighteousness, they what? Suppress the truth. Now let's go to verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, the language of suppression again. Claiming to be wise, says they became 
fools. Let's look at the next set of verses. Verse 28. It says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Those who did not honor God. Those who claimed to be wise became fools. Those who knew this but yet didn't do this. The first way that all of us reject God is this. It's suppression. We take what we know and we shove it under the rug. Because we'd rather not deal with it. I'm notorious in my house for this. I will, does anybody in their house, um, when you're, does anybody like organization in their house? And when things get dirty, sometimes we don't want to deal with it or we don't have time to deal with it. What do we do? We open that spare closet, right? And we just shove it all in. And we think, you know what? I've got to get through this week. So I'm going to just shove what I don't want to see in. Or company's coming, so I'm just going to shove it all in and I'll deal with it later. Y'all ever do that? Or you've got some big deadline coming and it's just looming over you and you just, you're, you're good at just putting it aside so that you don't have to actually deal with it. Anybody? Anybody? Procrastinators or just if things get so overwhelming you'd just rather not think about it and pretend like it's not there and yeah, it helps you cope. Well, what Paul says is similar to what goes on in our hearts and he calls it unrighteousness. In fact, In its essence, it is rejection. But he says what happens is we know what is true about God. We know the way that he wants us to live. We know that we should worship him. We know that we should find our satisfaction in him. We know that our life should be centered on him. We know his word. We know our conscience enough to know what is his will and what is not. And yet we take all of these true things and we shove them in the closet because we'd rather not deal with it. In fact, we'd rather live our own way. We suppress. Because we'd rather be our own God. We'd rather be our own standard. We'd rather not have to submit. We'd rather not. We'd rather not. You think about any sin in your life. I mean, just think about all the way back to the Garden of Eden. She knew. Satan came at her at the point of lie, questioning the, the objective truth that Eve knew. She knew she wasn't supposed to eat of that tree. Oh, Eve, did he really say that you were not supposed to eat of that tree? Questioning the basis of what is true. It's a heart of sin. And if you track the sin in your heart and life, what happens is if you can trace it back, I guarantee you will find that you are suppressing something you know God wants or you know about God or something that he has said. You suppress it because you'd rather do what you want to do. He said they suppressed the truth. They did not honor him. They did not think that God was all wise. It's like we look at God and go, you know what? You probably don't know the best. So I'll just take what you're telling me, put it away, because I think I know the best. 
it says, claiming to be wise, we became fools. That's the first explanation, description of sin, our rejection. The second one is this. I want you to write it down. Exchange. The second way that we are to see our rejection is not just suppression, but also exchange. If you look at the scriptures... You can see it clearly, verse 23, 25, and 26, and then 28. There seems to be a pattern that Paul develops here. Look back at verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then verse 23, he says what? And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Look at verse 5. 25, excuse me. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Look down at verse 28. Or, excuse me, 26. He said, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Again, an exchange. One of the things that Paul's trying to help us see here, again, it goes back to all of us have chosen to reject relationship with God. But not only do we sweep it under the rug, what is true we suppress, but secondly, we Actively, knowingly, personally, consciously exchange God for something less than God. We exchange God, who He is, what He offers, what He promises. All right, I'm trying to make this real because this is real in your life. You know God. Who he is, what he offers, what he promises, the relationship that could be had with him. But in the point of decision, you say no to that in exchange for something else. And always that something else is less than God. Which is why he says, you've exchanged the creator the one who is immortal, the one who is blessed forever, the one who can fill you with all joy and righteousness and peace and love and hope, the one you were made for. You've exchanged the immortal, eternal God who is amazing. There's nothing better than him for the created. You could have had a relationship with the living God and yet you're over here dabbling with birds and animals and reptiles. It's a picture of Exodus 32 with a golden calf. You remember when Moses came off the mountain and all the people who had just been re- rescued from Egypt and put in opportunity to have a relationship with God, what had they done? They had fashioned a calf with their hands. And they were worshiping the calf. How dumb is that? But yet we have calves in our day, don't we? We exchange what God offers for, oh, you know, that job just pays so much. That sex is just too good. That pornography, I just love it. That money, I just can't stay away from it. The recognition at work, man, when that happens, 
You don't even know what that does for me. Man, I, I, I can't stay away from that. I want that control, or I want that relationship, or I want that feeling of security. And I know God offers himself, but I'd rather have all this other stuff. That, those are the idols. Those are the golden calves of our day. They're no different than Exodus 32. They just look like a different set of things. They're not trinkets, perhaps, we put on our shelf, although those are in the world today. But they're very much still things that we exchange in our hearts for God. He uses a sexual relationship here in Romans 1 to define the epitome of what this looks like. It's not that sexual sin is worse off than any other sin, but he showcases it to say, if you want to look at the perhaps the most clear exchange of the created order, look at what's happening sexually. It is the clearest picture of the depravity of human hearts. The exchange of what God has created for something less than what God has created. And people are groping to find what they want and what they need and what they are looking for and happiness and hope and all of these lesser things when ultimately it can only be found in God. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Do you feel the weightiness of it? I know my own sin. I struggle with sin as your pastor as much as you struggle with sin. None of us are without sin. And I know the temptations in my life and the temptations are usually at these two points. Suppression and exchange. You can understand your sin if you understand these two things. Paul's trying to help you get it. But the big picture here again, is that what is happening is that you are rejecting relationship with God. Now, I want you to get this this morning. I think, as your pastor, I'm trying to teach you this morning, okay? I want to teach you something that I don't know that many of us really know. There is a difference between sin and sins, Sin, when it's referred to in Scripture, is the more fundamental state of what's really going on in your heart. Whereas sins are the outflow of that most fundamental state. Are you tracking with me? when, When I say, what is sin? Almost always, what I get in response is we think about wrongdoing. We think about acts. We think about specific instances where we have done something wrong against God. And yes, the Bible describes those things as sin. But those are sins. Those are the overflow of the more fundamental sin of the heart. The most accurate description of sin, the sin that pervades all of our hearts and lives, is this. It is a rejection, a rebellion against God himself. And because of that rebellion and rejection of relationship with God, all of the other sins come. Are you understanding that? If you look at the history of the Old Testament all the way to the New, what you find, what you find is that God has always wanted relationship with his people. That's what God wants for you. In his love, he wants a relationship with you and me the 
thing that hurts God's heart the most and kindles his anger is when we suppress and exchange, when we choose to reject that relationship with God. That's where all the trouble comes. And that's where all of us are. Now, the outflow of that rejection is all the things that we get caught up in doing, our sins. But the most fundamental problem is our heart condition, the sinful depravity of our heart. Another word you could use to describe this is idolatry. If you can understand sin is idolatry, and in your small groups this week, you're going to be doing more work around this. But if you can understand sin as idolatry, then I think you can begin to get a grasp on what is your real problem. Yes, your wrongdoing is sin, but your deepest issue is where your heart is. And what Paul is saying here is that although you know God, you don't choose to honor him as God. Although you know God, who he is, what he offers, what he promises, that your life is for him, you continually exchange him for something other than him. And that, my friends, is idolatry. And that's what breaks God's heart, and that's what kindles his anger. How could you? How could you? He is God. He made you for him. Life makes no sense outside of him. How could you reject relationship with the almighty, eternal, infinite, all-glorious, all-powerful God? That, my friends, is our deepest issue. And that's what the Bible calls as sin. Point number three. The rest move pretty quickly from here because he's just diagnosed our biggest problem. The third point is this, and that is this, that we are all without excuse. We are all without excuse. If you look back at verse 20, he says, For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And then what does he say right after that? So they are without excuse. Um. Let me just clear this up real quick. You don't just fall into sin. Anybody ever heard that phrase? I just fell into sin. I just couldn't help it. I just fell into it. I don't know why we use that phrase in the Christian world. Y'all ever heard that? I just fell into it. It 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 was just right there and I couldn't do anything about it. Not true. You didn't just fall into it. You chose it. Well, I didn't know. I just didn't know. Eh, Not true. God's made it clear. I'm not trying to be callous about it because my heart weeps and breaks over the lostness of our world, the, the lostness in my own family, the lostness of our city, some of my closest friends. They don't get it. 
They look at me and they say, I, that's foolishness. I don't, I, don't have to live, I don't have to do that with God. I don't, I don't have a need to be saved. I mean, they, just, they genuinely think this. My sin's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it is. It is. And every person is without excuse. It is willful. Our sin is willful. We choose it. And secondly, it's stupid. We deliberately reject him. We actively exchange him. We know and we actively suppress. We want other things more than we want God. We want our way. At the heart of idolatry, friends, is you. It's not your sin or just the things that you're going after. It's you. You are the one that you want to be the center of your life, not God. And that's active. We want satisfaction. We don't believe he can satisfy. We don't believe he's enough. It is active, and we willfully reject him. We willfully rebel against him. It's our choice, deliberate choice. In every temptation, God says he provides a way out. We know in our temptation, we know what we should do, and we still don't do it. All people everywhere have done it, and this is so, so, so stupid. And I don't use that word very much. (laughs) Don't use it with your kids, all right? Never say your kids are stupid. You is smart, you is kind, you is important, all right? That's that's the standard line for your kids. don't call them stupid. But I will call myself stupid and I will call you stupid. And I think history will prove at the end of time that sin, rejection and rebellion against God is the most stupid, it's the most illogical thing that you could ever think of. Why, 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 why did we ever think that something else other than relationship with God would satisfy us? Why did we ever think that we were more wise than an all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful creator, God? Why did we ever choose to reject him or rebel against him? It is the most illogical thing. Why would we prefer images? I mean, if I held up a picture of Caroline and I snuggled with Caroline every night, you know, with a picture of her, Why would I ever prefer an image rather than the real thing? That's illogical. Why would I ever accept a lie rather than the truth? You know, it's like Turkish delight in Chronicles of Narnia. (laughs) Why? why? If you know something is a lie and you know something is true, why do you choose the lie? Because it's more convenient? But how stupid is that? Why do you think it's not worthwhile to retain knowledge of the creator who gave us everything? Preposterously bad deals. Again and again and again. Yes, you know, sell me a lemon once, but you're never going to sell it to me twice, right? Um, from Matilda. Anyway, um, why? Preposterously bad deals again and again. Stupid. We're all without excuse. Next. Number four. What Paul says in conclusion, 
again, he's answering this question, why do we need to be saved? First, you know God is powerful and you know you should worship him. Second, you have rejected a relationship with him by suppressing and exchanging. Third, you don't have an excuse. You do this, you do this, everyone does this and you're not an exception. You have chosen this. And fourth, why is it that you need to be saved? It's because God responds in righteous wrath toward sin. Your sin, my sin, our sin, both now and in the future. This is not a maybe. This is not, oh, well, we'll have to see in the end. I don't know. You know, God probably in the end, it's just, he'll just accept everybody. No, it's not like that. God's already told you how he relates to sin. And let me tell you how he relates to sin. He rejects those who reject him. He relates to sin with wrath. And I know that doesn't make me popular this morning, and it doesn't feel good necessarily, and it shouldn't feel good. God's wrath is being poured out, the scripture says in verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's real. He acts righteously, in wrath towards sin. Now it happens in two ways. It happens both in the present and it happens in the future. And honestly, I think both are equally as scary. And sometimes I get more scared by the present wrath than I do the future wrath, but we should be fearful of both of them and realize that they both happen. How is it that he acts in righteous wrath presently? That's the question. And Paul helps us to see it. Three different times when Paul says we've exchanged God for something less than God. He follows it up by saying, and God gave them over. God gave them over. Let's look at it in the scripture. Verse 24, 26, 28, and 32. Verse 24. Therefore, again, this is God in response to your rejection of him. Therefore, God gave them over. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their body among themselves. He goes on, he talks about exchanging again. And then in verse 26, he comes back to it and he says, for this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. He goes on again and he talks about exchanging, exchanging. This is all that we've done. We've rejected him by suppressing and exchanging. And then again in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Friends, this is part of God's righteous wrath toward sin is that he lets you get what you got coming. He takes his hands off He says, you want to reject me? Go ahead. And he actively gives us up to sin and to be stuck in sin, to be enslaved by sin, to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it such that we get to a point that we don't even care, that we know what we're doing is wrong and deserves punishment. But we're over here calling other people to come and do it with us. This is God's wrath in the present. So he takes his hands off and he lets you reap the due consequence 
of your errors. Not only is it present, but it's also future. Because in verse 32, we see this. He says that though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, there's an end to sin. The scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. And the end that all of us deserve is truly death. And friends, the worst death is not the physical death, it's the spiritual death. It's being left in condemnation, forever being separated from the only one who could possibly give you hope, joy, and life, satisfaction, and love. That's far worse than just breathing your last breath. Because what we know is that all of us are eternal. We're not just here on this earth. Your soul will live forever. But apart from God, that place is death. We will die physically, but we also die eternally, spiritually separated from God. And all of us deserve it. All of us are without excuse. Which leads Paul to his resting place, and then we're going to be done. But point five is this. We are hopeless and helpless in our sin unless God himself provides a solution or salvation. We are hopeless and helpless in our sin unless God himself provides a solution. If you look at verses 28 to 32, The whole passage kind of crescendos here at the end, and it builds and builds, and he says, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness and malice. They are full of envy and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They are haters of God. They are insolent. They are haughty and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish and faithless, heartless and ruthless. Though they knew that those who do these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, oh, oh really? You think, oh, uh-huh, you think you're going to get rid of this sin problem on your own, do you? You think you're free to just choose back toward God? You think you can get out of this on your own, save yourself? Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'll turn toward God later. <laughs> oh, friends, this, this spiral of sin is downward. You can find yourself in those verses in 28 to 32. All of those sins speak about me and they speak about you and all of us are moving deeper into sin if it were not for God. That's where you'd be suppressed in bondage to sin. The list is exhaustive, not really exhaustive. He could have kept going, but it leaves open the possibility that that even more sin will be created in your life until something happens to you. But on your own, hopeless 
helpless, in need of rescue, desperate for something to change and yet not having in you anything that it takes to make that change. That's where we are. And I'm telling you, friends, if you want to understand and celebrate and resonate with the good news of what Christ has done, you've got to understand your condition apart from Christ. And it is not a good one. Your biggest problem is not the circumstance that you face or the people that you deal with or the money that you don't have or whatever else that you think is going wrong. That's not your biggest problem in life. Your biggest problem is your heart. And in your heart, you have rejected and rebelled against God. You knew that you should worship him. You knew that you were owed to him. And yet you've rejected him by suppressing and exchanging the truth, trading him out for things that are less than him. You're not worthy of an excuse. You have none. You've done it. This is you. And God's wrath is being poured out toward unrighteousness and ungodliness. Here and in the future. And you are hopeless and helpless unless he intervenes. Paul wants you to get that in this passage. But I want to remind you what started this conversation is that he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Friends, understanding all of this, it's weighty, and you need to get it, but it should lead you toward Christ. Because in your hopeless and helpless state, only he, only he can save you. But thanks be to God that he's done it and that it's available to all who believe. Let's stand, church. So a few questions that are going to go on the screen as we close today. I pray that you will respond to God. Do you see that your biggest problem is your rejection of God? Do you know that God's wrath is truly against those who reject him? Do you realize that you are guilty, you are helpless, you are hopeless on your own? Do you believe that God and what he's done for you and his son Jesus Christ and his great love for you, do you believe that today, that he loves you and that his power is available to save and transform your life through what Christ has done? Oh, friends, come to Jesus today. Come to him knowing that he's your only hope, your only salvation, your only stay. I'm here. Prayer counselors are here. We're going to sing a song. This is your time to be with God. It's raining. There's nothing else for you to do today. You need to be with the Lord right now. Give your heart to him.